0: Hi everyone and welcome to the perma Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to another episode, um, another of the series that we're doing on grief. I'm really excited to welcome today's guest and I'll introduce her in a minute. Just before I do, I just want to remind you about the new Facebook community that, has, that I've started recently to do with the podcast, where listeners from the podcast come and talk about episodes of the podcast talk about all the different issues that come up on the podcast you know grief deconstruction mental health creativity all the different things um and we just have fun together and have community together and just have a safe sacred space um for us to build relationship and i would love you to be part of that um it's a facebook group um so if you go to facebook and find power podcast continuing the conversation um you can join that community and be part of that and i'd love to see you there so um yeah please do check that out um and i'm really excited about it and it's already growing so uh yeah please do join up so um okay that brings me to today's guest um and it's a new friend that i've made recently um uh, as often happens via social media, um, and she's got a really powerful story to tell us. So, uh, welcome, Anna.
1: Hi, James. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing very well. Thank you.
1: Good. Yes. So, good. so I'm
0: excited. Yeah, I'm excited to hear your story. Yeah, and um, yeah, I think we're gonna we're gonna explore a, a different element of grief today because one of the things that I wanted to do when in exploring grief was just unpack how big grief is that it's not just about losing some. it's not just about losing a parent or losing a loved one that, that grief is a much bigger, wider experience and something that we can experience in, in different areas of our lives and I wanted to explore that and I know that your story, we can do that so um, yeah, just tell us a bit of your just tell us a bit of your story and your, your kind of your background
1: okay um, so I grew up in um, really a, abusive home um, had a dad who is uh, narcissistic a lot of like here in America now you know we're seeing all of this going on with Trump and it's um, it was for me when I was watching the campaigning happen and we were watching election night and all of these things like I watched this going, oh my gosh, like half of our country is marrying this abusive guy and the rest of us are going to have to come in <laughs> and pay the kids and like figure out how to work all this out, which is how, you know, it works a lot of the time. Um, but in all of that, like I grew up in this abusive home. I left home really early. I was determined. I'm never, I'm not going to get in a relationship like an abusive relationship. I'm it's gonna do life totally differently than my parents did, with all the skills that I had under my belt that were going to get me to that place, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I left, and, and then that was just it. I had I had no tools. I had no coping skills. I had I didn't know how. I didn't even know how to be in a healthy relationship. Um, so I was in a series of really unhealthy relationships. Um, was married once to an alcoholic, and then had my daughter. We ended up getting a divorce. And then ended up in a second relationship that was um, highly abusive. Um, We dated for a while. We moved in together. Um, It escalated pretty quickly. But um, I left multiple times um, until I was finally able to, like, have the correct support system in place where I could get totally out. But in that process, um, he was stalking me um, for almost a year and a half. So... And just to give you an idea, when this was all said and done, we had ten active cases in two different um, cities or counties that were that were cases that he had perpetrated against me. Um, so, I was hiding. I had moved multiple times. Um, I ended up ultimately going uh, leaving the state that we live in. And um, I went through an identity change. Like, everything got changed to be able to get away from this person. Because, one, there weren't really good stocking laws in effect at that time. Um, this was many, 20 years ago. So there wasn't a whole lot there. And then, um, yeah, so when I was away, I started working with the safe house uh, where I was at. And I was getting therapy and working through all of my own stuff. And then I was invited like. the one of them, uh, one of the facilitators at State House came to me and said that the university was looking for somebody to talk about domestic violence for their nursing students who were getting ready to go on their emergency room rotations. So I was like, great, I'll do that. And then I went home and I was like, what have I done? Like, I'm <laughs> going to go speak in public about, like, all of these really terrible things that happened that I've not ever done before. Um, But I did it, and it was really powerful. Like, just being able to publicly speak that in a a venue where I wasn't defending myself or, you know, going to court around him. um, I was able to tell, like, what that looked like for me and how it could help other people moving forward. Um, And then, what was it, like, seven years? I think we were away for about seven years total. And then we came back to Colorado And I got in contact with um, one really specific um, advocate that worked with me through all of those cases. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Mm. So, um, yeah, so she would work with me in in all of these cases. I just wanted to go and have lunch with her and tell her thank you. Because advocacy work, especially around trauma, you never hear the after story. You're just here. You just see the trauma. So I really just wanted to tell her thank you. Um, I told her what I had been up to, what I had been doing. I, um, you know, told her I had spoken and that I was facilitating workshops for other women. And she was like, "Great! I have a group to get you involved with." And she connected me with a group out of our DA's office, which is a prosecutor in our uh, in Denver. And they had an, a group of survivors of violent crime, and so. I uh, got in contact with them. We made a video, which I sent you. I'll also post that on my Facebook page and all that, mm. which I'll give you that information. Um, and we st- we started going out where we were getting requests from uh, people in the criminal justice system who wanted to hear from victims about how could they could better, um, how the how the system could work better with victims. Um, we started working in Department of Corrections. So we were working with inmates <laughs> in their pre-release program. Wow. Because it, that was really, really powerful because um, I didn't want to do that. I mean, I'll, I'll tell the story. <laughs> like, So I'll tell the story. Like I um, had no interest, zero interest in working with inmates. I didn't, I none, 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 none. And a friend of mine um, was booked to go and speak, and she was uh, ill. And so she asked me, begged me, begged me to go and do this talk. And I was like, okay, fine, we'll go and do it. And I'm driving down with the other speaker, um, Joe, and I had no idea where we were going. Like, I just got in the car with him, and we're driving along. And so finally I was like, Joe, where, where exactly are we going? Well... We're going to like the maximum security facility in this town two hours away, and there should be 60 to 80 inmates there. And so, James, nothing I do is simple, ever. It's always (laughs) file by file, Yeah. (laughs) For sure. So, we we went and we did this talk, and there's a few things that I realized was that um, this group was a volunteer group, and these men were so happy and grateful to just have people show up and be in the same space with them. Mm. So grateful. And they also like the the level of trauma that they're carrying is whether it's men or women who are incarcerated, there's like a ninety five percent rate of having experienced some kind of trauma, whether it was in poverty or abuse or addiction and you know, in within mm. the family, like So we're not, and it just hit me like, we're not in a vacuum. I could go talk to criminal justice people all day long. I can talk to victims all day long, because I know my story. But these are the guys who actually need to hear what we're talking about, right? These are the guys who need to like, be having these conversations and hearing us. And what ended up being such a beautiful thing was that I got tired. I'd been doing it for a couple of years. I had signed, like I had written a resignation letter I was exhausted. I wasn't sure if what we were doing was doing any good. You know, every time you go and you tell this deep in-depth story, you're giving a little bit of yourself away in it. So it's hard to, like, find balance of, like, am I, am I really doing good work here? So me and Joe were driving down to the same prison from the first time, only two years later. And he, I was telling him about that, and he's like, me too. He's like, I've been there." I'm, I'm done, I'm tired, but like, I, I was ready to close my business and pack up and move to Florida. Um, and just for a quick perspective, Joe's daughter was murdered 26, I believe 26 years ago, and she was six months pregnant at the time. And so he, you know, he has invested in all of this. Mm. Um, he had laws changed to toughen uh, the uh, sentences, uh, the inmate sentencing. So, yeah, we were both just like, oh, we're just tired. And I and we got there, and I told them, Bill, we should tell this story. Like, we need to tell this story. And so we told them. We told them that we had both been exhausted, that we were both ready to quit. We had both written our resignation letters on this Friday, and on the very next Saturday, we both received these huge packages in the mail from the Department of Corrections, We both assumed that it was more paperwork because you're always doing paperwork to be able to go in and visit the inmates. Um, What they were were letters from inmates that we had spoken to over the years, and it was deeply profound. Some of them were definitely just form letters, like, oh, no, you could tell they had to write it. Others of them talked about how they were abused. Others of them talked about how their sister or their mother or someone they knew were being abused. And some of the really brave ones talked about how they were abusers and they wanted to know how they could change it. So that pretty much answered the question of why am I doing this, right? Like if we can get Mm. through to just a few people and help them understand. Um, So we told them that story. And this inmate got up. And this guy was, was, he was bad. He was an inmate gang member. He hated Joe because he was one of the first people sentenced under the law that Joe had gotten passed after his daughter was killed. And um, He stood up and he said, you know, you guys come back here over and over. And he's a lifer. He's not going anywhere. But he continues to come back and listen to us. Mm. And he said, you know, you guys come in here and you talk to us and you tell us the stories. And he's like, and at first I hated Joe and I really didn't give, I, I didn't care about what he had to say uh, talking to me. And he's like, but he's like, you come in here and you tell us about the ripple effect, like how what we did has this effect on our families and the communities and all of this. And he's like, but you know what I never realized in all of that was that you, was that how he flipped it around. He said, I didn't realize that a ripple effect could be caused by a good act. It was always associated with negative for me. And he starts crying. He starts tearing up. And he says, but if me writing that one letter is going to keep you and Joe doing what you're doing and coming back here to see me and all these other men, then it's completely worth it. And he's like, and I understand now that those ripple effects are both positive and negative. This is a 50 year old man. And like he clearly, this was the first time he was understanding that. And so that's kind of, like, how all of this whole thing started for me, um, was doing that. I uh, continued to speak with uh, criminal justice. I've uh, spoken at um, women's events, One Billion Rising, a couple of years ago. I spoke at our local event. I uh, was a key speaker. And, um, but in in all of that, like, you see all of this healing and all this speaking was really positive for me, but I was, struggling with all of this trauma, with all of all of the insecurities I've carried since I was a child, like questioning myself about who do I trust, when do I trust, how do I allow like people back into my life. Um, and in that, I was very much drawn to the evangelical church. Mm. Um, I had friends who went, um, so I started going. I went to... actually. It was my ex-husband who brought me there. And he was, I mean, that's what he was doing. He was trying to help me find a path that was going to be good for my healing journey. Um, Yeah. And I started going to small groups, and I got very involved with the women's groups. I ended up getting very, very involved with the recovery programs. And there were several churches that I had attended over the years but that seemed to be where I connected best with people who were processing through their hurt and their grief and acknowledging. Mm. So I facilitated, like I participated, but then I flipped and started facilitating. So I was facilitating for, not for addiction, because that wasn't my thing, of course, you know, but for codependency, um, I worked with the women who had, there were love and sex issues or, um, it, so this was a really important part of my life. I was there every Friday night, I was volunteering, I was helping out. And then about seven years ago, I ended up being um, invited to be on staff. So what I will say is that during that time when I was doing my own recovery work and facilitating with the group, it was very much like um, I knew, like I could feel that healing happen. Right. But then once, it seemed like once I kind of broke out of the deep trauma of it, then there was a lot of like, okay, like, great, now you can do this. And so and by this, I mean another thing to volunteer for, another thing for, to, to be okay, right? especially within the church. And so you start feeling a little bit overwhelmed. Um, but even in that, I was good. I was in it. I was volunteering on the weekend services. I love the recovery program. Um, and then um, my husband, who at that time, it's been 15 years we've been married, um, he had some injuries at work and he got, uh, he had some, he was addicted to opioids and fell into a terrible, terrible, terrible depression, um, lost his income. <laughs> we were you know, he was doing well. He was making six figures, which is how I was able to do all the volunteering and the work and you know, I could stay home and be with the kids and it was great. Um and it all collapsed. I mean, like it it, it built up, but like the big collapse was like a three month period where like everything fell apart. We lost our home. Um we it was it was it was bad. It was really, really bad. Um but, like, it was fascinating to me that I couldn't get as much support as a staff member as I got when I was a volunteer or when I was just, you know, wow. a part of the congregation. But as a staff Goodness member, me. like, I just felt abandoned. Um, so then about six months after we lost our house, me and my son had moved in with a friend of ours. And um, my son um, had his first suicide attempt. That was the beginning of his freshman year of high school. Um, He had been participating in the youth group since he was in fourth grade. Um, We were in and out of the hospital with him. I don't want to go into too much of his story because it's his story. Um, Yeah, absolutely. what um, What I do have permission to say around that is that he was hospitalized anywhere from two to three times a year for the next five years. Right. I mean it was just it was a constant battle. There were some paranoia and delusions, depression. I mean just,
0: we were just in the ringer, <laughs> like trying to yeah. deal with all this. Yeah, yeah. It, it's powerful. It's like it's interesting because you 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 went through all this this abuse and trauma and and kind of found an escape in kind of evangelical Christianity, which was mm-hmm like which was where it's all everything's certain it's everything's structured it's like you believe this and this will happen believe this god will do this um it's kind of it's very it's very secure it's very everyone knows where they stand everything it's all certainty you know and when you're going through a bit of trauma and grief certainty is very attractive yeah you know. it is and for a certain period of time you can for a short period of time you probably need a little bit of that Yeah. you know in a way to kind of ground you and get you get you going mm-hmm. again i mean i know that from my experience as well that you know that you know um, in small doses certainty can be helpful um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but it what it sounds like is that actually what hap- what it what it became was was actually became unhelpful it became unhealthy it became kind of Mm -hmm. too restrictive um and that actually was kind of covering up a lot of things a lot of pain um and this is i'm I'm, when when I'm when i'm saying this i'm saying this from my own experience as well because it's exactly the same for me um religious certainty can like can cover up a lot of a lot of pain and it makes you think it's gone away it makes you think you're in control of it, but actually, it's just, it's just still under the surface. You just can't see it. Right. Um, and for me, or my experience, and, I'm, and I'm, I don't know. I'm, I want to hear your experience as well. That it was a way of covering up the, the grief of not of of, moving on from my past, of dealing with my past. It was. Um, I hadn't fully grieved what had happened to me, and I was just surrounding that grief with certainty I mean is that is that your experience as well
1: absolutely and I think I'm gonna take it to a whole other level is because working with the um, recovery program that I was let me just just to give the audience and you an idea of how big this church was um, is the attendance on the weekends at that point was like 15,000 people our recovery group on Friday nights we were on average, 250 people were showing up to the recovery program. Whoa! This was a large church, date. Gosh! Like, a small
0: little. <laughs> like, the biggest church service I've been to had about 250 people.
1: Yeah. Like, and was, that was the was, church, was, church service. It was, yeah, it was a huge <laughs> church. So, from that perspective, yes. And I think the certainty... Is what I needed, and then and then going into the recovery program. Like I said for years, actually before I went on staff, that if I had to choose between the regular services and the, the recovery program services, yeah. I would always go the recovery
0: program. Services. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like I've, I've heard this so many times. Like recovery, twelve step programs. Mm-hmm. They are. They're more what church should be. Like yeah. for me, that's what it feels like to me because you go in there and you tell the truth yes. and you don't hold anything back and you don't hide anything and you don't cover anything and you don't build around everything it's kind of like mm-hmm. a way to have a little bit of structure but also to actually be honest about the pain right, yes, absolutely but
1: here's what is fascinating is that kind of as Ben's addiction was starting to ramp up Hmm. I was invited to give my testimony at the recovery program, which was fine. So that was the recovery. So that was all talking about the old stuff, the domestic violence, the stalking, the all all those things. Yeah. And they they were hungry for it, right? They wanted to start. I'm not talking about staff, like people and um, oh my god, you know, this is so good and what a powerful story for Jesus and blah, 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 blah. And so I did the testimony, got all the accolades for doing the testimony and for like doing all the right things and now being a great this good Christian. But what the juxtaposition to that was was that when things fell apart, feeling was I had done something wrong and terribly wrong for things to have fallen apart so much. Because, yeah. Like it wasn't right or I didn't do the things all the things I was supposed to do. Like there was actually for a while at this church they had they had a series of sermons and um it was called Two Deals on the Table. And so it was literally like foundational for, for quite a while around the church and it talked about and it's it's if all duality, right? If you do this then Michael will like this. If you do this, then Michael was like
0: this. Yeah. Yeah, I
1: know. Um, Yeah. Right? And one of the <laughs> things I'm super grateful for is that this other route that I was taking, where I was um, speaking, like, I was coming in contact with different safe houses. I was coming in contact with the criminal justice system, with inmates, with folks who work on legislation. Like, it was this huge, diverse community who was working towards, like, the good of trying to eradicate or lessen domestic violence and, like, the impact of it. And so I think what was really a saving grace for me was being around this diverse community, being around, like, regardless of whatever else was going on in that other recovery program, in this group of survivors of violent crime where we were able to talk to each other, we had this deeper connection, right, because of all these losses we've had. Mm. Um, So the, the loss was even before we left, right? We were still very much engaged with the church when my son was abandoned. Like, I remember going to the head head like, the lead of the youth groups, all of them, and saying, look, here's what's going on, because I had access, because I was on staff. Here's what this kid is going through. He needs you to show up. He needs you to be here. And they showed up once and didn't show up again after that. And that was worse. I think that was almost worse for him. Yeah. And of course, as a mom, the grief is profound. Because why are we here? Are we not here to take care of each other when things break? Are, are we not yeah. here to hold each other up? But I got a lot thought of thoughts and prayers.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. thoughts and prayers, yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. Anderson
1: I, Cooper did a story, James, about and it was he was he was interviewing a group of moms who had kids who were struggling with mental health issues. And he asked the question like, what's the difference? Like if your kids had a physical ailment versus a mental health ailment, like what's the difference? And one of the moms piped up and said, casserole. And all of the other moms said, yep. And he was like, wait, what casseroles? What are you talking about? And the mom responded, if my kid had been diagnosed with cancer and we were trying to fight and keep him alive through cancer, We would have had a stream of people bringing us casseroles for food. We would have had people calling us saying, how can I support you in this? Can I come clean your house? Can I come, you know, food train any of that? Kids who have mental health issues, families who have mental health issues, that does not happen. And that struck me so deep. And, like, every one of those moms were like, yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. And it really, it was this moment of... You're
0: right, and we're on our own. <laughs> oh man, that's so awful. I like, I mean, I don't have really, I don't really have words to, under, to express how I'm feeling like about that. It, like, it, it's just so bad when, when people don't realise the impact of mental health on families yeah. and on individuals and. You know, actually, I've always, I've actually said this a few times that if we could, if we could see the internal wounds, the emotional wounds, or the mental health wounds that we have, we'd all be like, "What's wrong? How can I help you? Like, can I call the doctor? Can I?" You know, we'd all be doing that because we all walk around with these emotional wounds, all of us to some degree. You know, some of us more than others. Yeah, but all of us to some degree have those scars that we carry around with us but we, because we can't see them or because they're not like cancer I mean cancer is really bad don't get me wrong cancer's very bad oh no no no, no right. cancer's awful like but and cancer can kill you but mental illness can kill you as well oh James, um, we
1: were in a fight for this boy's life yeah we were in a fight for his life on a daily basis like he just wanted to die and we were in a race against the clock to try to figure out how to help him before he actually figured out how to do it. And so, yeah, it's it's devastating, you know. And I think sometimes like, there's something to be said that mental health's a little bit, in my mind, it's a little bit harder because even me, like, as I'm watching him go through this and as things were getting worse, it was like seeing in him a pain that I could understand as his mother, that maybe his friend could understand as his friend. But, like, outside of that, I don't know what the level of understanding could be, right? There's Because there's such a disconnect with that understanding of mental health. Of
0: mm. Yeah, especially when it comes to religious certainty. Because I feel like there's an element of... When it's religious certainty, there's kind of, like, this dis, discomfort with mental illness because... You can't, you can't build a, you can't just build a structure around mental illness. Right. Like it's yeah. there. You know, it's like you can't build a structure around somebody who has cancer. They've got cancer. You can't hide it. You know? Right. Right. Um, and when somebody got, someone's got mental illness, you see that every day. Like um, there's actually, it's really funny. There's this movie that came out earlier this year, uh, Joker, which is, uh, about, and one of the things that. That he he's he's a guy with severe mental illness who's been through abuse and trauma and all of this, like with tragic consequences for him and for other people. But he has his journal, and one of the things he writes in it was I thought was really profound. The thing about mental illness is that people expect you to act like like you're not ill, like you're not ill, like like they expect you to act like a normal person, like when you're not when you've got an illness, you know, and it's. Um, and I and I guess in a, in a culture of certainty where people where you're trying to build structures around the pain, yeah, that's not comfortable for people.
1: Mm-mm. Nope, and no, I saw Joker too, and I was deeply, deeply impacted by it. Like just yeah. watching, it and like, oh, but that scene right there when he wrote that, like, I I just thought, it was crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I was,
0: yeah, the yeah, like,
1: same. It was very much you know that, that. so I'm going to go a little bit further in healing while all this was happening I had started reading Richard Roth ah. um, yeah and so I was I Excellent. was experiencing a softer side of Christianity right like a, a more gentle a more welcoming and I remember in that time thinking this is the Jesus that I've been looking for like, these are the folks, these are the people that I want to be involved with. Um, but I was still very much entrenched right now in the in the evangelical church. Um, are you familiar with Nadia Bowles Weber?
0: Oh, yes.
1: Okay. She's amazing. So I went there, to
0: her event in went, London. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I had I started listening to Nadia also. Well, she's the pastor of a church here in Denver. Um, and I had avoided going for a while because they were having a lot of people just show up. And their church is not a big church. So they were having, like, literally, like, tour buses would show up. (laughs) And so it became disruptive, and they kind of asked that people, like, don't be a tourist, but if you're looking for a church home, come visit us. So I just I kept listening to it online. I didn't want to be a tourist because I knew I was still going to stay Uh, at that point. I knew I was still going to stay at the church. Um, But then when everything came down, when everything fell apart, one of my jobs was to vet therapists that wanted to be on our referral list. And I had um, vetted this woman, and I took it to the head, the pastoral counselor, and I gave her the application. And she like, gave it back to me. And she's like, don't even bother going on with that because I've driven by that building and they have one of those labyrinths out front. And I remember thinking, what's wrong with the labyrinth? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like a walking labyrinth and I couldn't like it was just baffling to me at that moment But then I realized um like very soon after that I was reading something about Richard Warren he was talking about walking in labyrinth and I'm like so I was so confused like why it was that um that after I was um fired from the church which happened um we ended up going to Nadia's church and they were having in the um they were announcing that the very next weekend there was going to be a contemplative prayer retreat, and it just said silent retreat. And I remember thinking, I need to go there. <laughs> like, that's, that's, I need to go and be a part of that. Um, and so we did, we went, I went to this retreat, and the first thing I saw when I got out of the car at this retreat center was a labyrinth, <laughs> which I felt was like, kind of, like just, Oh, it was permission, right? Like, go and open yourself to this experience and let it be what it needs to be. Um, And so I was able to be quiet, and I couldn't – I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. Um, At one point, I was talking to my boss, who had previously to just been my friend and mentor, Um, and I was just telling her where we were at in our journey. Ben was struggling, Benny was in the hospital – I was having a hard time, and um, I went pretty in depth with it, and she looked at me, and she said, well, don't let anyone or anything steal your joy. Am I all the cuss? <laughs> hmm? Yeah. Because I was like, what the fuck does that mean right now? I just lost my house. My son almost just killed himself. My husband's in rows of this addiction and mental health stuff that I've no answers for because I've not dealt with any of that ever in my life and so I'm just supposed to be joyful right now like is there any room for me to grieve here so and that was like that for me was like I can't do this with you anymore because you're telling me not to grieve and if I don't grieve this will destroy me
0: yeah and uh... Well, it just speaks so much to me about not just church culture, but but culture, Western society as a whole. Like we, people almost don't want people to grieve. You get, you get a certain allowance of, of time to grieve, uh, and then yeah. you're suddenly meant to and get on with your really life. Done. Like you know, it's, um, yeah, it's it's it's, it's it, yeah, it's it's incredible, really. Like people like just expect you to move on and like that's it you know and maybe you'll get some counseling or something but that yeah. but but they expect you to go back to living your life as it was you know it's and it uh, and just suddenly like oh i've got to be happy and praise god when this this big thing happened and i've lost i've lost this loved one or this or this or my life has changed in a way that they that can never go back like yeah. Like, and I've got oh, yeah. to grieve no... how my life has changed and how I can't go, and the life I can't go back to, you okay. know, and the relationships that have changed that will never be able to go back, and all yep. of those kind of things, and people just wanted to get on with it, and it's, that's not how it works.
1: No. Well, and, and when, if, if you do choose to do that, which I could have, I could have chosen to stay and suck it up, but, like, I never would have trusted her again. Right, like there's a there's a certain amount of trust in that moment that's lost when someone that you believe cares deeply about you just completely disregards everything that's happening. Um. So yeah, so I went to this retreat, and we it was silent, which was glorious at that time. Um. And at the end of it, we were sitting on the very last day for the very last sit, the very last meditation. And I remember just feeling like, like everything just came into my center. Like all of these, this grief and this anger, and this rage had just been like floating around chaotically all around me. Yeah. And then on that very last sit, it just felt like everything almost funneled in to like my center. And, and I just remember thinking, this is how, this is how you find peace and joy. It's not by volunteering for another position, <laughs> right? It's not by whatever else they have on their list of things to do. Um, hmm. The other thing I loved about Nadia's church, and I'm just going to do a juxtaposition. So at the big church, they were having tryouts for the band. And literally, the associate pastor said from the stage, if you're not good, don't even bother showing up. Like, if you're not, and I mean, when he says good, he means, excellent. Don't even bother showing up to try out. Which was just like heartbreaking, right? And then I show up at Nanias Church and their whole um, <laughs> they're, they're one. Of, you walk in the door and there's a sign right there that says anti-perfection, pro-participation. In other words, we want you here whether you're broken or not. And that's how this church lives out there. like Like, I don't have any doubt. I could go on their private Facebook page today and say, oh my God, you know, something happened with Benny and I would have 10 people show up in 10 different ways that I couldn't have ever imagined at the other mm-hmm. And it was, it's um, its such a beautiful thing. It's such a beautiful thing. But the grief is profound too. And, you know, as we're talking about grief, like it's been six, six to seven years. I don't want to get too specific, but six to seven years since all of that happened. <clears throat> And my son just moved out. He's living near his sister, and he's um, doing really well. He's on his own. He's got a job. He's renting a you know, little small place that they have from them, and he's close to her, so I feel better about that because you know, she knows what to look for as far as mental health stuff goes. But all of a sudden, I'm an empty nester, and I've spent the last seven years of my life, like, fighting to advocate for this kid um, within the system, within the school system, within the mental health system, like... And, and he kind of walks away like, I'm good, which is fantastic for him. And I'm kind of left here going, oh, well, now what do I do with myself? Yeah. <laughs> and the I kind of like you know, and what was interesting was that I wasn't struggling with, like, living my life. I was doing really well with that. But what I was finding was that not having him or um, my husband, who's now my ex-husband, but, like, not having them... To like advocate for and work for and fight for, um, like I didn't know what to do with myself, and all of a sudden all this grief starts coming up, like the rage and the grief around her saying that, right, around her saying you don't let anything or anyone steal your joy. I, I kind of it knew and it stung in the moment, and it was like, man, that's really shitty. But then, like, I packed it up and said, I didn't have time. Right. There was no time to actually process through this grief and still take care of any animal or still take care of and and all the things yeah. that needed to be taken care of. So you put it away and like you said, it's just under the surface. Right? Everything looks pretty on top and like, oh, you're doing fine, you're working hard, everything looks good, but underneath you're dying. Like there's just this rock at top of me. And so as it start, as it started coming up, um, I'm gonna continue with that metaphor of the rot because it feels like the, the the grief that's coming up, at least my experience of it, felt like that this grief that coming up was bad, was like not healthy for me, not good. And I mean not healthy for me in that I shouldn't be feeling it at all. Right. Like I it's seven years ago. Why all of a sudden are you are you trying to bring this up? You're just being dramatic, you're just being lit. yeah. No, that wasn't it. Like That church, that church community was a huge part of my life. And James, I want to go back to what I didn't tell you was how I found that church community and ended up being in it. Was somebody had sent me a series, a sermon series about domestic violence. They actually spoke about domestic violence from the pulpit, which never happened. And they were, like, calling it out. And and so I was, like, I felt that pull in. But overall, as the church, just before we were getting ready to, before I left, like, they had taken this hard right turn into, like, hard patriarchy, hard, we need to fix the men. I mean, they had a man event where they were auctioning off four-wheelers and automatic weapons. I'm not kidding.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: Was, like, they went really scary. Crazy with and so it was just, it was devastating on all the levels. Like... All of a sudden, they didn't care about women or what was happening to women. In that process, with the work I do, I do a lot of advocacy for work for women, and I have um, very quietly worked with several women from that community who are actually directly being impacted by the patriarchy that they're teaching now and the way they're teaching it. And they're more oppressed now than they were ever before.
0: Wow. So sad. I mean, it, it, it seems like there's so many elements of grief that you've experienced. It's like there's there's the grief of dealing with, you know your trauma, your abuse. There's the grief of what happened in your new family and the life that you lost with them, that and the life that you had to start over with them. And then there's the grief of leaving that church community that you'd been part of. Mm-hmm. And finding a new community I mean there's so many different dimensions of grief in your story. Yeah. I mean it's like it's, it's really powerful. Um, so how have you now I mean I mean I'm intrigued like and this new experience of grief with being an empty nester like <laughs> um, which is a really valid form of grief um, for any parent I think like yeah. and so how are you now now with the experiences that you've had? How are you learning to process this grief in kind of a more healthy way? What well, well, has it helped you do that?
1: So, part of it, a, a huge part. I want to be like, I want to give credit where credit is due. A huge part of it was that um, three years ago, I was actually accepted into Richard Woods Living School, and wow. so I was, yeah, I was able to go and participate. Um, Still working out some kinks with that just because of all the trauma that happened. Um, but it was a profound experience, and I want to share with you, um, I was on my way to the very first um, symposium for, for this program, and it was in Albuquerque, so I was driving from Denver. I have a friend who lives in Santa Fe. I stopped and spent um, the night with her just to get caught up, and at 4 o'clock in the morning, I got a text message from Ben, and I knew something was terribly, terribly wrong. And so um, I called him back. And I, before I had left, I had refilled all of our son Benny's, um, prescriptions. And he took all of them. Um, ben was in the hospital with him. And he was stable. And he was okay. Um, they were, you know, of course, monitoring him and looking for him, uh, a place for, uh, in a residence. And... I, that was the first time I I, like, I sat there and I remember Ben was like, are you coming back? And I was like, I can't answer you yet. I need to get off this phone. Benny's stable. I'm going to go have some coffee and then I'll call you back. And so I called him back and I was like, no, I'm not. You guys can handle this. You're, you're there with him. Um, I was on the phone with the the doctors and trying to find a placement and everything. Uh, um, I was like, I can't. Like, this thing has run my life for the last however many years. Um, So I got in the car and I started driving towards Albuquerque. And I did... I think think that 45-minute drive, I processed so much grief and so much rage. I mean, I just... Cried and screamed and yelled and uh, all argued with God and cussed at. I mean, it was just, all the way, all the way there. And like, who has to make these kind of choices? Why are you doing this to us? Like, all of that. Then I got there and I got in my room and I got settled and I sat, I was getting ready to go to the first meeting and I sat down and I thought, you know what? Because you know what living school is. You know what Richard Roy is all about. Like, I just went, it's kind of a hands up moment. Like, this is it. I have been accepted into this program and this is what my life is right now. This is the truth of what my life is right now. And if there's anything that's going to help me heal through this, it's going to be this. And then I stayed for the rest of the program. And you know, everyone turned out okay. And here's the thing. So for me, being the caregiver while all of this is going on, I thought the world would fall apart if I wasn't there to take care of everybody. And so it was a really good lesson for me too
0: and that, that
1: they're fine, they can, they can work it out even without you being there. Yeah, so, that's profound. Like, it's,
0: so right? it's like when you stopped playing that role just for a moment and chose your own well-being and your own health and your own... Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, then, then you are able to process the grief. Yeah, because that, that 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 forty-five minute drive wasn't just grief from what happened. Just at that moment, it was grief from years and years and years of things yeah. that have happened. And like anyone who's grieved knows that experience, because everyone who grieves has that moment where it just you just go and it all comes out, and it's crying, and it's and it's just I don't even want to call it rage because it sounds like anger because you want to scream, mm-hmm. like. Uh, wow. the heavens you know you want to just but it's not it's not it's not just raw unadulterated screaming or anger it's grief yeah. it's like the wailing of grief like it that's what it is it's just yeah. there's this stuff inside that just has to come out you have to get it out um and that comes out in a whole variety of ways but it's not i wouldn't call it i wouldn't even call it anger or rage or or anything else other than just grief Like it's and it's and it's in your body. Like I've experienced this. Like I remember watching a movie that triggered this for me. Like Mm -hmm. and at the end of the movie this dead person writes a letter to this person he's left behind and says to get on with your life and just live your life. Don't worry about me. Stop trying to take care of me. Just get on with your life. And it was like my mother was writing that letter to me. You know, this was like twenty years after she passed away, or not twenty years, fifteen years after she passed away. And I cried at the end of the movie because I always cry at those kind of movies anyway. But then there was a delayed reaction that, and I've said this on the podcast before, there was a physical reaction where I just physically felt all this stuff, this pain coming up out of my, out of my, out of my chest, out of my head, out of my mouth. Like, and it was just energy. It was like, it was. I wasn't even crying. It was just yeah. like this. this raw, it was grief. It was just grief yeah. being released that I'd been that I'd been storing up in my body, that it was just, uh, now it's got permission to come out. I can just yes. release it. And, yeah. So I totally get that experience.
1: When you mentioned, like, the physicality of grief and how we hold it in our bodies, um, the other thing I did, like, once we went to that retreat, and then I started going, you know, attending the House for All Attenders and Saints, which is Nadia's church, and then, but I also went back, like i had practiced yoga over the years more as a physical um, experience rather than mm. like it's spiritual or emotional or, yeah. mm. So I went back, and that was a huge part of my healing process, too, was like learning about <sighs> yes. yoga and learning about meditation, like to the extent that I went and got my certification. So I teach yoga. I teach trauma yoga. Um, and oh, yoga that's yoga. so good. And I, yeah I am in child child work and mindfulness I've done some work um, in schools with kids um, but primarily my my the the clients that are drawn into me are women who have been in abusive situations or moms who are going through some kind of grief like this or some kind of grief whether it's a child who's sick or I mean, there are so many things that we really need to grieve, right? Like, Mm. losses of children, losses of jobs, losses, like, you're right, we don't give ourselves time to do that. And so I try to create containers and and spaces where people can come in and share their stories and, um, and really talk about, like, what are the hard parts of this and where do you need support and how do we start coming around each other and taking care of each other? Instead yeah. of pointing
0: the finger at each other. Yeah. Yoga's been beneficial to me as well. Yeah. There's definitely an element of that which helps process the grief. And yeah, like yeah, grief is something you carry around in your body. It's not it's not a yeah. it's not just an emotional or mental or even physical thing. It's it's, it's in you. Exactly. It's just in you. Um and in some kind of transcendent kind of way. It's like in your very being. Yeah. Um, and every part of your being. Um, um, Did you that,
1: ever find yourself? I would find myself like in the middle of this grief, just like looking around the world and going, how the hell is the world still moving? Like, how are people still going to work every day? How are people made Like, because there's just so much chaos going on in your own space. But
0: it's, I, I just, I would struggle with, like, fathoming, like, how are you holding your life together in any meaningful way? Yeah, how, yeah, yeah, that's definitely, yeah. I, yeah, that resonates. Like, how, how does everyone deal with this? Like Because you learn to recognize it in other people. You learn to notice it in other people, just yeah. like if you're on the bus to work or something. You, you can see it in other people even if they don't see it.
1: Yeah, oh Yeah.
0: And, Which
1: is hard. Yeah. You have to be very careful yeah. about not going into other people's space because you want to be like, oh my gosh, I had this amazing experience
0: and I know how to help you get better, right? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? That's <laughs> right. And it's like we I just we're carrying it around Yeah, and we're all I'm carrying it around as a culture, and I think this is mm-hmm. a whole other subject. And I've mentioned this in this in this series that you know that there's one of the some of the problems in our in Western society today, are part of, are partly down to grieving um, inability to grieve our cultural identity, like um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, make America great again. You know, Well, um,
1: I fully believe that, that kind of thing. Like this integration is is, is so important, right? Because here's here's the thing: like that unprocessed grief puts us in a place of victimhood. Every time, yeah, it creates. It creates the container for victimhood. It creates the container for the guilt and anger and fear and everything that comes with. Oh my gosh, I'm a victim. All these things keep happening to me. But as if we're actually dealing with our grief and processing our feelings and working through all of it, like we don't have to be a victim, right? We realize that like there are choices to make. About am I going to go to yoga class today or not? Or who am, I, who am I going to allow to be in my space, right? Because, like, with Benny, it wasn't just the church that abandoned us. Believe me, when all that went down, there were family members who fell away, like, all of these different things that were happening. And you're just like, okay. I was so angry and so hurt, especially by, well, I, all of this, but by family members who slept away. But now, like, looking back on his process and where he's at now, and the kind of human being he is now, here's what I would tell any one of those people, is thank you for not showing up, because if you had, you would have been ill-equipped to deal with him, or to help us, which probably would have just caused more drama, and at this stage, like, the people who needed to be in his life were, the people who needed to be in my life were, and you made choices, like, then he's in the hospital again. I am going to call two people, right? I'm going to call his dad or three people, his dad, my best friend, and my mom. And they know who to call. And those are the only people who get to be a part of that circle anymore. Yeah. Like, the rest that walked away or who couldn't do it. And then, and then here's my shift in thinking that on some level, if they couldn't deal with it, then they were actually taking care of themselves by not showing up, by walking away. And for that, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that. Yeah, that's a good perspective, actually. That.
0: that is a good perspective. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. If you can't deal with it, then if you're unable to process it, then to protect yourself. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, do what you need to do to protect yourself. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, so just to finish, I mean, this has been an amazing conversation. Oh, um, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but I guess what's the biggest lesson that you've learned about grief from, from your story, from your experiences, what is the biggest thing that you've learned? There's no one way to
1: do
0: it and we can't do it alone. Yes. So true. (laughs) <laughs> i totally agree there's no one way to grieve and we don't do it alone yeah absolutely yeah well thank you uh Anna, for being on the show it's really okay. um, i'm really grateful um and maybe we'll have you back sometime and talk about this more because i feel like this we could talk about this a lot more so uh, absolutely okay, just let me
1: know i'd be happy to be here I'd like i other people we could bring it like i said you know i told you earlier my my ex-husband we're we're very very good friends he's gone through this amazing deconstruction and he's in the process of reconstructing now and it's a beautiful beautiful thing so like, awesome. whatever however we want to do that
0: um yeah we'll have you both on yeah <laughs> yeah that'd
1: be great
0: um and where can people find your your work and what you've done all the things you do
1: so, um, on my Twitter handle is, um, at it's always an, um, and my Facebook handle will be the same. I'm working on a website, so hopefully it will all be up and ready to go and it will be at it's always Anne.com, Um, once, you know, you get this released and I'm just really looking forward to connecting with people, connecting with other, other parents, other people who are grieving and, um. Uh, again creating space and holding space for for all of us to like get well together
0: because that's the only way we're going to do it yeah absolutely yeah we've got to do it together community um we can't do this alone and we don't have to (laughs) so thank you so much and thank you for listening everyone and uh yeah if you're part of the facebook community do let us know what you think about this episode and what we've talked about and questions and things that it's brought up in you and that's what that community is for so um thank you for listening everyone and take care and we will talk again soon